Hi, my name is Anita Novak and I'm the author of this book. Welcome to season 11 of Purposeful Empathy, a show that is dedicated to amplifying the voices of people from across the globe who understand that the world needs more empathy and are doing something about it. Thanks for watching. Enjoy the show. Welcome to a new episode of Purposeful Empathy. Today, I'm joined by the fabulous Carla McLaren, who is an award-winning author, researcher, and empathy expert. Her groundbreaking Six Essential Aspects of Empathy model highlights all the processes in healthy empathy and makes them understandable, accessible, and attainable. The model helps people access, develop, and manage their empathy intentionally, and it explicitly welcomes people who have been exiled from earlier models of empathy. This includes boys and men, people on the autism spectrum, and those with personality conditions, including narcissism and sociopathy. Carla is the author of many books, online courses, and audio learning programs. Her books include The Art of Empathy, which I have read and can't wait to talk about in a minute, The Power of Emotions at Work, Embracing Anxiety, and the Language of Emotions. She is the founder and CEO of Emotion Dynamics, Inc., and the developer of the online learning site, empathyacademy.org. Welcome to the show, Carla. Thank you so much, Anita. Thank you. <laughs> I was, um, so this book came out in 2013 and I had defended my my dissertation in 2011. So I wasn't able to use it as part of my research. But after falling in love with empathy and seeing the power of empathy, I ordered, uh, like I continued ordering every book that I came across on empathy. So I read this a long time ago and I knew when we were doing this interview that I was like, I should go back and review some of my notes. So I'm just going to read for listeners and viewers just on page. It's not even, it's like a prequel page. It's in your preface, just something that is so quotable that I love so much. And it's only more so 10, day, 10 years later. Empathy is everywhere. It's the air you breathe and the ground you walk on. It makes relationships, communities, and societies work. So I just love that. I just love that. And I'll also share for fun on page 12, 13, 14, 15, there's a quiz in this book. You must just buy the book just for the quiz that takes in your empathic inventory and you have to answer yes and no questions and then add up and you will have three little scoring um, places. In the first time I did this 10 years ago, when it came out, I scored 24, which is the sweet spot. And I did it again. And now I'm 26, which means I've I've hedged up my empathy score just a smidgen in the right direction, but not in a way that I'm too empathic. So thank you for writing this book. And I want to talk about it. Okay, so Carla, let's start from the beginning. Where does the concept of empathy come from? From... In, the, in, in history, in history, it, I, I tracked empathy and I thought empathy was a word that, like an old English word, like it came with apathy and antipathy and sympathy. It didn't. It didn't. Um, it came from the German word Einfühlung. And um, <clears throat> that was uh, a word that was, was around the end of the uh, 1800s that was being being wrestled with by the German aesthetic movement. And they were trying to figure out, uh, many of them were painters. Um, Gustav Klimt was one of them. And they try to figure out, so here I am, Gustav, in 1875, and I am taking some pigments that are dead, putting them on a canvas that is dead, transmitting my emotion 
in such a way that I agree that's what I meant. How does someone in 1975, when I'm dead, look at that dead canvas with the dead pigments? How does the emotion come out onto me, uh, the, you know, the viewer? What in the hell is happening? <laughs> you know, what is happening? So that was what Einfühlung means. It means in feeling or feeling into. That word translated into the English empathy. And it came into our language in around 19, uh, in the like 1900 and 1910, and it became a word. It became an English word. Um, so I was really fascinated that it came in so relatively late, that the concept, now, as we saw with, with, the, with the German aesthetic movement, they didn't know, they knew it happened. That was clear, it happened. When someone does a dance and you can pick up emotion from it. When someone sings a song in a specific way and you may not speak the language, but you know what's happening, right? Mm -hmm. What is happening there? <clears throat> and I think, as you know, as everybody struggles to find a definition for empathy, we still don't entirely know. We still don't entirely know. We're still in the place of art and dance and music, right? So empathy came in and it became a thing, but it was really not considered a very serious thing. I think when you did your PhD research, that would be in the 20, 2005, 2010 you know, era, we had some information on it, but previous to that, there wasn't a lot of research done on empathy. What was the earliest you found when you were doing your work? Mostly psychologists that studied it from a behavioral standpoint or being able to predict what personality types were empathic, but that was like in the forties and fifties and it was purely in psychology. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the most amazing um, research on empathy in children wasn't even done on empathy. They didn't even use the word. It was done on what's called desire reasoning. And this was the very famous Alison Gopnik um, and Betty Rapacholi study where they, um, it, the broccoli and goldfish study, if, if, if you know it, oh my gosh, it's the most. Tell me, study. tell me. They, um, <clears throat> they wanted to know at what age do children realize that other people have desires that are different than, than me, right? So they had a researcher on one side and the baby on the other, um, probably um, 12 months to two years. They were looking for it in that area. And the researcher would put a bowl of broccoli in a bowl of um, goldfish. And if you know babies, goldfish is like chocolate crack for babies. They love those little goldfish crackers. You can get them to do anything. Um, it's a rare baby that doesn't want a goldfish cracker. And so, but it, with raw broccoli, there was less of an interest, right? Surprise. So the researcher without words would, would go, ah, you know, blah, um, goldfish, yuck. And then look at the, at the raw broccoli, like, mm, that's the most delicious thing that has ever, you know, existed. And then would put a hand out to the baby and say, will you give me one? And at a certain age, babies would give the goldfish cracker, which was very generous, mm -hmm. but it wasn't anything close to what the person wanted. At a certain age, they would go, okay, you're a little weird, but here's your broccoli. <laughs> okay? mm -hmm. They would put the broccoli in the hand. And that was happening at around 18 months. 
18 months to two years when a baby could realize that you are a different person from me, you have different needs from me. I don't agree with your needs, but here's your broccoli. Mm -hmm. And for me, that, <clears throat> that was so amazing because I think we all have friends who are generous, but not empathic. Like, mm -hmm. I got this sweater. It's a color that works for me. <laughs> Here you go. And you're like, have you even met me? I don't want this sweater. But it costs $700. So thank you. But, you know, I hope you have the receipt. But um, the generosity and empathy are two entirely different things, right? It was very generous for a baby to give a goldfish cracker. Mm -hmm. uh, they love those things. They will hoard them like dragons. But if you need one, I'll give you one. Um, mm. so, so sort of that, that picture, that was, that's one of the most famous empathy <clears throat> research studies that never says the word empathy. Mm. And so it's just really fascinating to me that, you know, I had to go, I went to primatology, I went to psychology, I went to sociology, I went to anthropology, I went everywhere looking mm -hmm. for empathy, as you know, if it, it's and now neuroscience, right? Yeah. Yeah neuroscience okay uh, <laughs> and there's also some really truly horrific empathy research that's just just please you know just please stop it um that that you know exiles people from empathy right mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. when i go out and talk about empathy i jump in front of it and welcome the exiles so either we talk about that now or we get to it later. Is it alive for you? Do you want to talk about it? Let's talk. I, can, about... I always can talk about the exile so we can move it on. Okay. So let's, let's, let's do that for fun. Well, okay. Just before we close this little bit up, how would you um, frame empathy based on sort of the research that you did and that came out into the book? Like what's your frame? It's in the book. And I did create an entire, it's right over there. I'm doing some research and the book's over there. It's like, please bring the book to me. I need to be like a stiff board. Um, but basically, I'm going to just. Well, I, I, yeah. yeah. It's a social and emotional skill that helps us understand the emotions, thoughts, intentions, social space, social structure, such that we can offer appropriate communication and support. And such that is a huge pivot in empathy research, huge. Um, many people would see empathy just as the ability to take in information, especially mm -hmm. emotional information, and they stop there. Um, then uh, other people, there are camps, as you know, in empathy research, there are mm -hmm. camps, but it's not fun camps with marshmallows, it's camps of fighting. And so I am definitely in the one in the camp that says, yes, empathy is primarily an emotional, you know, a way to an emotional reading practice and skill, but you have to be able to do something with it. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you're just going to be overwhelmed. You know, if you have no, if you have no action that you can take. Mm -hmm. yeah. Love that. Love that. Which is why I think we have alignment. You know, you've used the word with intention and I use the word with purpose there, but it's, that's, it's, you know, what do we do with it? My PhD was actually empathic action. Like, okay, what do we do with the empathy to change the world or to improve our relationships? So I think there's, there's a lot of, um, uh, what is it? Uh, Kimmet? Uh, is that the word? I, I can't think of the word anyways. Kinship. Kinship, kinship, but there's something else, but kinship. Yes. Else. Okay. 
So um, I, I was going to ask you to walk through your six essential aspects of empathy, because I think that's super important, but we'll get to that in a second, because let's, let's talk about those exiled, right? Okay. Well, there are people, I get asked the question too, but what about, uh, how, can you empathize with somebody who's a narcissist or somebody who is a psychopath, uh, or can they empathize? And then men, you talk about men and boys too. So like, okay, let's talk about, and people on the spectrum as well. Let's talk about those in exile. I tend to welcome them first because if I don't, uh, quite, you know, if someone from the exile category is in my audience, they're going to hear a horrible question about their themselves. Yeah. So I <laughs> empathically, I jump out in front, say, first thing I want to do is welcome the em exiles of empathy. Um, certainly men and boys have been, um, have been characterized as less empathic. Um, and you cannot look at men and boys and their empathy uh, without looking at socialization, which changes the brain, but it doesn't break the brain. We can always learn to be, <clears throat> to, to work in a, in a healthy and comfortable empathic space with others. It's not difficult. It's a function of being a, a member of a social species. One of the slurs against autistic people, and I did my master's thesis on uh, autism from the neurodiversity lens, which is the idea that an autistic brain is a different kind of brain. It's not a, it's not a broken brain. It's a different brain. Um, is that uh, when I worked with autistic folks, I thought I, I, I had a job working with autistic um, uh, college students and my job was to support them in, in whatever way I could. And I thought, <clears throat> I got to turn down my empathy because I'm going to drive them nuts because I had read the stuff that said that they were unempathic, right? So I was like, I got to turn down my empathy and just really be chill in the way you are, for instance, when you come upon a wild animal in the forest, right? You just chill your whole self out so the animal doesn't see you as a threat. And so I went into that with that very chilled out place of observing and as I watched these kids, and they were 18, 19, 20, I watched how they picked up things. I watched how they felt things. I watched how they touched things. And I went, oh my God, they're hyper-empaths. Oh my God. Um, and so then I knew how to be with them. What I saw is so much incoming data, everything in the room, every single part of the room came into them and everything that was coming off of people and they were overwhelmed. And, and for some autistic folks, there's also like, there's not that capacity to organize it. So it's like being awash in an ocean of emotion at all time and, and a, um, an ocean of social input, social and sensory input. And so the looking down, the, you know, the, the, the perseverations, the, the stimming, I stim, I stim constantly. I'm a hyper empath, so I need to stim. I've learned how to do it out of people's view, right? But I'm super stimmer. And um, I was like, oh my gosh, they're like me. And uh, I, they're not my opposite. So learning that, uh, as I went into my own research, I found a beautiful thing called the intense world theory by uh, uh, married researchers named the Markrams. And that was kind of uh, helped me understand that <clears throat> these are not exiles of empathy. These are super hyper empaths who need some support in organizing what is happening with them. So a lot of autistic folks use the art of empathy and my language of emotions as kind of like these little 
books to help them, you know, sort of organize all of this extreme incoming input. Um, narcissistic people, um, a lot of people put psychopaths and narcissists together. Um, whereas a psychopathy or sociopathy, it depends on where you're from, what you call it, um, can be a, a neurological difference or deficit it, actually in the brain where there is not the kind of people reading or concern for others that, that you would need to have, but it doesn't mean a person will be evil. There are many um, psychopathic people who find ways to use their ability to turn off emotion contagion to the, the good of all. Many surgeons could be in the psychopathic because who can cut into a live being and not scream? <laughs> <laughs> right. So there's lots of ways that we we need people who are more on the psychopathic. Um, and I hate, you know, that even the term How about the, who, who are on the more unempathic area, because uh, as we know, as hyper empaths, as I know as a hyper empath, sometimes it's just horrible. It's just horrible. So I've learned to turn that down. Um, and narcissists, the <clears throat> the current rage about narcissists just pisses me not off no end because a narcissistic person is a person who has survived child abuse. This is, this is a, a specific form of child abuse where the person has been used as a narcissistic object by the parent or somebody where the only thing that mattered was how they presented for the, the, the benefit of the parent or someone else. So a narcissist is a trained and abused person. So for me to turn toward a narcissist and say, you're evil and you're the opposite of empathy, screw that. Um, that is awful. It is awful. I also see a lot of nonsense on Facebook and social media about how empaths and narcissists and it's all this, you know, like, like I don't know, middle school nonsense about them being opposite. And I did a, a, a summit on narcissists and there was a whole bunch of people talking about narcissists and I was one of two people who was on the side of the narcissist. Hmm. I went back to the story of Narcissus and Echo and talked about where did this come from and who are these people? And this was right during, you know, the middle of the horror of the Trump presidency. And he certainly had experienced tremendous narcissistic injury from both of his parents. And uh, that's how it turned out. Um, but to say that he's unempathic, I'm like, he has tremendous empathy for certain things. He has tremendous Einfühlung for certain things. Not for me and you, but for certain things. But to say, you know, now Donald Trump is exiled from humanity. Like, no, that's an injured little boy who grew up to be, you know, blew up. But this is, yeah, this it's is unfortunate. I mean, that's why I think trauma-informed therapy and all of the, you know, collective trauma work that's starting to really emerge in cultural discourse is so important because too many people who have been victimized or traumatized or suffered for those aces, you know, and they're like, they're, they're wounded, um, can rise to power and do a lot of harm to society. So that's, you know, so you, you have empathy even for the narcissist. That's, that's really interesting. That's really interesting. Yeah. And I really have empathy for, you know, psychopaths and sociopaths because there's a part of them that is broken and they know it. Mm. They know it. Mm. And mm. the thing is, they do have empathy. They, even 
a sociopath or, or a, a psychopath does have empathy, does have certain parts of empathy. And if they want to, they can work on it. They can work to increase it. But they will always speak it with an accent. Hey, I don't mean to interrupt a great conversation. I just want to draw attention to the fact that there are over 120 equally awesome conversations of my podcast and YouTube series on my channel. Please subscribe. The world needs more empathy and you have a role to play. Right. Okay. So I'm going to switch gears again a little bit and ask a question about, I think you alluded to it earlier, those folks that are doing like kind of weird empathy work. Um, we are both kind of pro-empathy folk. We think that empathy can be uh, practiced and and, um, and and manifested intentionally and purposefully for the good of relationships in society. But why do you suppose some people are against it? And what's the empathy work that you're like, mm, don't like that? One of my favorite guys is Paul Bloom, who <laughs> wrote the book Against Empathy. And I've talked to him. I'm like, Paulie. Yeah. <clears throat> he's in the camp that sees empathy as only emotion contagion right mm-hmm. and he's horrified by it and he's not wrong Polly is not wrong I call him Polly don't tell him Dr. Bloom uh, <laughs> <laughs> at <laughs> Yale <laughs> at Yale yeah you're like way up there Dr. Bloom I apologize um but he's very honest about his own difficulty with emotion he I don't say this lightly or often but he suffers from anxiety disorder mm-hmm. so his personal experience of emotion is fairly horrific mm-hmm. so you know we have to understand we have to see the location the social and emotional location of the people who are against empathy and if that was the only experience of emotion that could be had then i would definitely be on paul's side mm-hmm. i agree let's be against empathy because it's terrible um, and we've all experienced terrible, the, you know, the terrible aspects of empathy. My autistic friends with their hyper empathy, like, <laughs> you know, it's horrifying. And one of the problems I have as a hyper empathic person is that many people don't know what the heck they're doing with their emotions. They're just like a pinball made of fire, just spewing emotion all over the place. And I just said, whoa. <laughs> you go over there, right? Um, but as I went, as a younger person, I didn't know how to set boundaries. I didn't really know what I was doing. I was bowled over by those people. So I'm definitely in Paul's camp. However, my model fixes what Paul sees as wrong. Mm-hmm. Let's get into that then. Let's get into that. Let's Let's unpack your model. These are the six steps, yeah? Yeah. So the six essential aspects of empathy come mostly from the research and Um, I created a sixth one that does, that's my own. But the first aspect, I say um, uh, empathy is first and foremost an emotional skill, is it begins with emotion contagion. Although that word, that's from the research, it is a pretty terrible word. It's like emotions are cooties and they're coming for you. Um, But basically it is something emotionally evocative occurs. And so the first place where empathy begins is for you to understand that something has occurred, right? something emotionally relevant has occurred. Now, empathy can stop right there, as Paul says, if the emotion is too much, if it's overwhelming, if it's an emotion you have no practice for, right? You 
you're just going to lose it. So your empathy would end there. Um, the next step is empathic accuracy. To be accurate about what is happening, whose emotion, you know, what this person is feeling, exactly the emotion it is. And you can also lose empathy at empathic accuracy if you don't know how to read people's bodies because everyone's body is different. There's no way, there's no one way that emotions look on bodies. There's no one way that they feel. So you actually have to know people to be able to empathize appropriately. For instance, when I'm thinking, this is what I look like. I look terrible, right? It looks like I'm angry. So a lot of people would read my body and think, well, now she's angry. And their empathy would end right there because they don't know me. Yeah. Um, so the third is emotion regulation. This is really the key in this because let's say someone is very, very angry. You've picked up that emotion through contagion. You know what the emotion is through empathic accuracy. You have no practice for anger. You don't even know what to do with it. And so you're going to sort of fall apart unless you know how to regulate the emotion within yourself. And that you're saying this is so key. And I'm what I'm feeling right now as I'm listening to you is like we're triggered all over the place. Social media yeah. is like it's full of triggers. It's it's built on triggers. And yeah. so that's really important is that we got to downregulate. We got to. Yeah. Yeah. Identify the emotion. No, especially on social media. Know what emotion they're trying to get out of me and then mm -hmm. have a choice. I was like, mm -hmm. well, I see. I see what you're doing there. Mm -hmm. And no, I I will, you know, I do not choose to have my emotions hijacked into at this time, right? Mm -hmm. But many people don't even have that level. I mean, they don't even have the regulation where they know how to breathe <laughs> when an emotion is present, right? So yeah. having that, you know, that that ability to analyze the, the the things that are coming at us from social media is is very it's, it's not strong, right? So social media sort of can come get us, and uh, and our empathic abilities to, you know, to call that out is really important. Um, so, so we've got the first three, emotion contagion, empathic accuracy, emotion regulation. And the art of empathy in most of my books are, live in the emotion regulation area. They're like, how do you regulate emotion? Not control, not manage, regulate. Um, we go up, sort of this first three is the, the foundation if you can't get these first three, the other three, you might as well just forget it. Okay. The, the, the fourth one is perspective taking. Your capacity to understand. I right now I'm feeling some soft level sadness, a little bit of happiness, maybe some grief because of this, right? I know who I am. I know what my emotions are. This person over here is feeling some anger with some panic with, you know, with this, so I can feel the difference between the two of us. Perspective taking is where I understand that that person wants broccoli. They're out of their minds, right? <laughs> but they need their broccoli. So perspective taking gives me the capacity to understand self and other. Mm. And that should happen when they were babies. But a lot of times people don't really have, you know, they don't have that as a specific skill. And then the fifth is concern for others is to care enough with all this information you've gathered. And a lot of times you don't, you know, have you ever had that? I gave it the office pal, you know, I don't have anything for you. So take it someplace else, right? The concern for others can go on and off. Concern for others in my model is where compassion lives. 
a lot of people want compassion and empathy to be different things. I'm like, nah, they're part of the same process. Um, and um, the all of these all of these words are from the research. I grab them from sort of everywhere. And then the sixth and sort of culminating aspects of, of empathy, I call it perceptive engagement because you have to know and then you have to make decisions about how to engage. In the research, this is called targeted helping mm -hmm. or, cons or consolation because when you do research, you need to see an action, right? You need to see someone give you the broccoli. You need to see someone support you as you're crying, right? You need to see so that you can write down and say, okay, that baby is empathic or that person is empathic. But in real life, sometimes the most empathic thing you can do is nothing. Mm. You know, it's nothing. Don't do anything. Like um, a man, a well-dressed man with a briefcase, he's got it all going on and he's walking across the street and he trips. And the first thing he does is he whips his head around to see if anybody has seen him. Shame is the first thing that comes up for him. Uh, empath, you did not see that. Look at that squirrel, right? You keep him in, you know, in your peripheral vision to make sure that he didn't really hurt himself, right? But you give him his privacy. So you would look unempathic right then. Mm. But you are you are meeting his needs. Now, mm. if you didn't know that and you're like, oh, I'm an empath, and you got your rainbow cape, you're like, sir, I saw <laughs> that you tripped, you know. <laughs> Um, you're going to break his heart because he wanted, you know, you're going to make him feel so terrible because, you, you know, that empathy is about you. You know, it's about your picture of yourself as an empathic person. So, yeah. So that's, a, that's my model. And um, I, what I found is the people who are hypo empathic and would like to change that, they can go into the model and see what pieces are difficult for them. People who are hyper empathic can go into the model and learn how to turn things down. Such a powerful model. And one of the things that I heard you say as you were describing it was that some of us don't even know that we need to breathe when we're feeling an emotion so that we can actually <laughs> discern that we're having an emotion. <laughs> right. I think I still I still am a work in progress in that. Uh, but it wouldn't it be interesting if we could be taught to discern our emotions more often, more regularly. And I think that's what you're doing. Right. Isn't the mission. So maybe you could speak to the mission of emotion dynamics. This is the company that you have and the Empathy Academy training courses. Like what are you trying to teach and what's what, what are you, what's your mission? What's your purpose? What's your purpose? <laughs> emotions are central and vital aspects of cognition. They aren't good. There are no good emotions. There's no bad emotions, no positive, no negative, no pro-social, no antisocial. All emotions are aspects of cognition, basic cognition. Each one has a very specific purpose and each one has a very specific gift and skill that it brings to us. And so learning that, then all of a sudden with this emotion contagion, empathic accuracy and emotion regulation, you've got this, you have got it, right? I mean, you fall down, you get pissed off and you don't breathe and you're like, I wanna kill that guy. But you know what the, certainly you become more intelligent. You certainly become more empathic, 
but you also become more settled in your in this human life because you are having access to the very um, the very mechanisms of thought and action. And so we teach a way to take a breath during that emotion period is to turn toward the emotion and work with it. Uh, I have questions for each of the 17 emotions. And the questions that most people learn to ask their emotions is, why am I angry? Or why don't you shut up? Right, our, our, our questions for our emotions are tend to be pretty unkind. Um, but to, to understand what the emotion does, what its purpose is, and to ask a question that helps you channel into the emotion so that it can do what it needed to do. And the reason it came up was anger is to help you set boundaries, fear is to help you focus on the present moment, anxiety is to help you plan for the future, sadness is to help you let go of things that uh, you need to go anyway, uh, grief, when you've lost something ir ir irrevocably. Um, you know, each emotion has its own place in the psyche. Each emotion does something. So we learn the language of emotions and suddenly this whole world opens up. So, yeah. Would the, would these 17 emotions and what you just described be somewhere where people could read about it? Because I, mm -hmm. I think this is, a, this is a tool that you have. Like, can we put this in the description notes? Is it on your website or where yeah. can we learn this? Yeah. Yeah. I have, I have posts on each of the 17 emotions and um, the questions are there and what the emotion does. Um, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's lots of free stuff at carlamclaren.com. <laughs> like carlamclaren.com. We're going to include I that in the notes. I want to be more comfortable in this world. Yeah. And, and here's so. another moment to plug this fabulous book. You want to hold up a new one? You want to hold up a new one? Do you ha have anything that you want to share with the audience? That's like we your are, favorite book? I'm now rewriting or... I, it's in it's in production the language of emotions which i wrote in 2010 um we are now done the revised edition so all the okay. new questions for emotions are there um yeah and uh i mean i have cover art but there's no real book yet but okay. it's, it's very exciting so just out of curiosity did you read atlas of the heart bernie brown's uh, study of emotions is that i did not okay all right yeah okay so some people in my in my circle did, and they were very confused by it. And uh, yeah, yeah, she and I have a huge disagreement. Uh, she doesn't know about it. Who am I? I'm nobody. You know. <laughs> tell me more. Tell me more. If you when want I to tell me more, shame, I talk about shame um, as a crucial emotion. And as you may know from empathy research, sh the development of shame pre um, precedes the development of empathy. Uh, you cannot develop empathy if you don't develop shame. And so if children have a shame delay, they're going to have an empathy delay. Yeah. Why is that, that you need to develop shame first? Explain. Um, shame helps you understand your effect on the world, right? It helps you understand how you are, um, how your behaviors fit into the, to the social world that you're from. If you don't develop shame, a healthy, appropriate shame about your behaviors, then you will tend to be, um, you'll be shameless. You know, we know in English language, we know that shameless is not a good thing, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I make a very clear distinction between guilt and shame because a lot of people, and now Brene isn't the only one who does this, 
But the idea is that guilt is what you feel about something you've done, while shame is what you feel about something you are. And I say, um, no, no. Shame is the emotion you feel about something you've done. Shame is the emotion you feel about something you are. Guilt is a factual state. You either did it or you didn't. Oh, you're guilty or you're not guilty. And so, interesting. yeah, so so people won't raise their hand and they said, you know, have you heard of Brene Brown? I'm like, Miss Thing, she's got Oprah money behind her. I mean, <laughs> I mean, people on the top of trees in different countries who don't speak English have heard of Brene Brown. Okay, yes, I know who she is. But I tend not to get into it because, you know, she's, she's in the zeitgeist. She's, you know, she's a beloved figure. So I don't want to come in and like, ping, 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 ping. But I, I do speak uh, very strongly about it in my book, um, uh, Embracing Anxiety. I think it would be fascinating for you to be on her show to have a dialogue. I'm sure she would love that. I don't know. I don't think she would. I don't horrified know. By you. you know, she's up here. And I'm just a You're Carla McLaren. I'm just a running around going rat. I think. Um, I think in terminology, I think we might uh, we might have an agreement, but I think that to tell people that shame, feeling shame about what you are, is unlivable. I was like, um, you know what? I don't come from middle class white lady world. You know, I've lived on the streets. I've worked in prisons. I've been with really deeply troubled people who did horrifying things. You know, they didn't just sort of trip and murder someone. They were a murderer. And watching the work that they did in prison, watching this, I mean, this was evolutionary work of working on the shame of what you are, what you've become. And those people who did the real work of shame were, you know, they were, they were my mentors. It was like, okay, there's something really and beautiful in this in this emotion of shame this is life-changing this is this is you know epic poetry kind of work um to to tell people that they can't feel shame about what they are because they're just tiny babies and then they don't have any skills i'm like no you unnecessarily weaken people if you tell them that they can't manage shame mm, that's powerful yep so then okay uh I, I'm penultimate question. Given what you just shared as your six steps, um, do you feel that it's really a, a must have skill for leadership? If you're going to be in a leadership position that you must develop the capacity to empathize, you know, in a way that is helpful, generative. Um, just wonder if you could speak to leadership. Yes. And there's a problem there. Um, I do workplace you know, consulting, and I wrote a book called The Power of Emotions at Work. There is a thing that happens in hierarchy, right? You will see that at the top of hierarchies, you will find um, reduced empathy, you'll find hypoempathy, you will also find narcissism and psychopathy at the top. And the at the bottom of a hierarchy, you'll find hyperempathy, right? So, so a hierarchy is empathy damaging in and of itself. So leaders knowing that have to be like 100% on their empathy game because the, the, the process of moving up through a hierarchy will damage your empathy. It absolutely will. You may, so you're gonna need a lot of support around it. Um, and part of it is if we're in a hierarchical system, it behooves us 
to look laterally and to look up because that's where the power is. So it is unusual for a person to look down. It's what managers are supposed to do. Many many managers don't know really what's happening. Hierarchy, hierarchy is sort of a hidden system. Uh, it's right there, but it's hidden. We sort of swim in it. So managers should be looking down, but most don't. As you get higher and higher in the hierarchy, your laterality gets smaller and smaller because it's a pyramid. So you don't have to have as much empathy. And eventually there's no one to look up at. So your empathy muscles get flaccid and you lose your capacity for empathy. Whereas the people at the bottom, their laterality is quite large and everything they're looking up is quite large. So their empathy kind of explodes. Mm. So hierarchies in and of themselves are empathy damaging. So if you're in a leadership position, you need, you need to be on your empathy game because you will be damaged. And so will the people below you. So when I go into workplaces, I'm like, oh, hell no. <laughs> we got to get this. You know, I tend to flatten. You know, the hierarchy can still say where it is, especially if it's a bureaucracy. Bureaucracies are naturally hierarchical. But to make little spaces where there is an egalitarian, free, open empathy and communication in an otherwise damaging system. Mm. So, yeah. Yeah, I think also about politics and elected officials who yes. are, you know, following that track in order to be successful, losing touch with, oh, that's, that's, wow, that's, I'm glad I asked that question. Okay, we only have a few minutes left. I've so enjoyed this so much, so much, so much. Um, I love asking my guests at the end to tell me a story if they can think of one when they were on the receiving end of empathy and what it meant for them. There's so many stories. There's so many stories. I remember one that had criticism plus empathy. Um, I was in one play because I didn't enjoy it, but it was called The Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. And I played the belly dancing, you know, kind of the set dressing person. And I did my own makeup. And I decided I wanted to make Egyptian eyes. Right. And I'm strangely not Egyptian, but I wanted to, you know, make the whole Egyptian eye and the thing like that. And so I did my whole makeup. I had my whole outfit on. I went to my mom who had modeled in her life. And she looked at me and she said, you're prettier than that. <laughs> and it was the most wonderful, empathic, you know, like she's saying that looks awful, but she did it in a way that spoke to how much she cared about me. And I was like, I keep that in my mind, you know, constantly. She died in 2009. But just to be able to look at something someone's doing that is just, just horrible, right? Just terrible. And to be able to speak to the truth of, you know, of, of what, what there is there. And um, that for me was really wonderful. I love <laughs> that. Criticism. I love it. I love it. I love it. Thank you for that. Thank you. And I'm sorry for your loss, but we got to remember her today. And now everybody is thinking about her as well. So I guess he lives on. Carla, it has been such a delight to meet you. Um, I'm a longtime fan. I look forward to hopefully meeting you uh, on the West Coast. And thank you for, for taking your time to, to share with everyone. Thank you so much. We'll see you next week at Purposeful Empathy.
Thanks so much for watching another episode of Purposeful Empathy. Please subscribe to my channel. Please consider buying a copy of Purposeful Empathy. Remember, the world needs more empathy and you have a role to play. Thank you.